0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balrani, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Karen G. Ruffle. She is associate professor at the University of Toronto's uh, Mississauga campus. We will be speaking about her brand new publication, Everyday Shiism in South Asia. Karen, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Raj. Um, i pleased to be here today.
1: Yeah, I have a fellow Torontonian on the call. That's a rarity. Yeah. Wonderful. So tell us how this book project emerged. How did you end up writing on this topic?
0: So this project, uh, sort of a number of years in, sort of in the making, uh, it developed uh, in 2015, actually, when I was in India, uh, I was in Hyderabad doing uh fieldwork on a project that I had initially sort of in its earliest stages uh, for a number of years, sort of termed uh, somatic Shiism, uh, the, bo- uh, the body in Deccani Shi ritual practice, and practice, and it sort of morphed into uh, something quite different uh, that I'd be happy to talk about. Uh, briefly later in in the podcast uh, because it's the subject of a current my current book project Uh, but I was approached by Rebecca Harkin who is the um or was uh the acquisitions editor for uh religion and theology at Wiley uh and she asked if I was interested in writing a book on uh on lived Islam uh sort of broadly conceived for uh their lived religion series, which they uh were in the process of sort of sort of kickstarting back up. Uh Joyce Flukiger uh wrote the Everyday Hinduism book for for that series and they wanted a book uh on on Islam. And and so I thought about it and I thought, well there are a lot of sort of books that engage with Islam. Islam is sort of a lived tradition in different ways. And, and I didn't really want to do another one of those books. And, and I thought about what I do and that's Shiism and what, what else I do, I, I'm i a South Asianist. I, I don't really conceive of myself as an is, Islamicist. I'm, that's not that's not what I do. I'm, I'm a South Asianist who specializes in Shiism. And, and so I countered and I said, well, here's what I think the field really needs. And that's, here's a project that I would, I would love to do. I would love to contribute a book focusing on sort of Shi'ism as a lived tradition in South Asia and focusing on the everyday, which was, you know, a, a key sort of aspect of my first book, uh, Everyday Shi'ism, uh, or gender sainthood and, uh, and uh, everyday practice in uh, South Asian Shiism. And, and so uh, Rebecca really liked the idea. And, and so this project developed out of those conversations that, that I had with her, but then I just kind of sat on it for a couple of years because and I, I wrote the, the proposal, and it, w- it went through. It went through peer review, and 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 I was given a contract uh, in 2016. Um, and and then I, I just kind of I felt a bit stumped. I wasn't sure where I wanted to go with it based on the chapters that I had proposed. Uh, and I had a separate chapter on gender, and then the life cycle. I knew I wanted to have material practice and uh, and architecture as a central, I knew literature would be important, but I felt that something wasn't quite right about how I sort of structured the book. And I, I knew because it had to sort of be appealing to a broad audience. I also felt really stumped in terms of, and and I I know that some of this will sort of engage with some of the questions that you ask later, but I, I was also really sort of st- stumped in terms of audience. How do I write for both an ac- a scholarly academic audience and then perhaps a broader audience? And it was also my second book. And second books are actually a bit, I think, a bit more difficult than the, writing the, the very highly structured, first book, which emerges out of a dissertation. And that's often, you know, a slower process than, than the first book. And, and so it took me a, a, a bit of time to sort of conceptualize what, how, how I wanted this this project to look, what actually the everyday sort of actually looked like for South Asian communities and, and, and individuals.
1: Yeah, there are a number of really interesting threads there um uh, it's certainly uh, i imagine it would be much more work um so i published um my dissertation in um, and the second book but the second book were the apocryphal chapters of my dissertation because i ended up writing essentially two dissertations unwittingly or enough for it. and so um it took a, a bit of work but you know there was there was a focus, there was a concept, but to start from scratch again with a research project. And so for the third book, I'm sort of uh, spinning my wheels a bit. So I I get it because I can go in a number of directions. Um, And yeah, who knows where that'll go? We'll find out. Back to your book, Uh, before we dive into say the the data you're looking at, the methodology and those kinds of things, you said something really interesting in passing that really pertains to the rebranding of this podcast. And yeah. you said, you know, I'm a South Asianist. I'm not an Islamicist. And so uh, you may be aware, but this podcast was called New Books in Hindu Studies for quite some time. And just <laughs> earlier this year, it was um, rebranded to New Books Indian Religions to make room for um, uh, books such as yours. You know, and when you say that, what do you mean by that? Or why is that? Could you say more about that distinction for our audience?
0: Yeah, so I think this is a really important Issue, uh, you know, South Asia. I mean, this. I mean, potentially could be a political issue for for some, uh, particularly considering the climate uh, in India, for example. Uh, India is not only a place where where Hindus live. Uh, it, it's a place of tremendous religious complexity, uh, and it's informed and shaped by multiple religious traditions. And so when I think about, I mean, so I published an article last year in the, in the journal reorient, uh, titled making Shiism an Indian religion. And by Indian religion, I really mean a South, a South Asian religion, a religion that's as much a part of the Indic as Hinduism or Sikhism, or Christianity, or Buddhism—it's—it's it's part of of this sort of broader uh, sort of cultural and and civilizational sort of complex. And so, you know, I come to define sort of this tradition—you know, the Shiism of the subcontinent. Uh, as Indo-Shiism and it's not Persianate, it's not Indo-Muslim, it's not Indo-Persian. I I see the Shiism of of this space as Indo-Shii and so, you know, by that, I see it as sort of the blending of Indic, right? The expression of, you know, a basic South Asian identity, ethos, and worldview that is shared by Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs and Buddhists and others who live and, and contribute right to these worldviews and, and identities and, and ethos and, and, you know, grammars of religion, right? And, and also a Shi'i Islamic religious sensibility, right? I see these, these blending together. And, and so for me, what I'm talking about in this in this book, a key word, right? A key term for me is Indo, that this is Indo-Shiism. And, and so to be a Shia, to be a Muslim in the subcontinent is to be participating in this broader sort of world of Indian religion.
1: It's a it's a deeply syncretic soil. I mean, even the the layers that we consider Hindu, you know, that umbrella term, uh, at some point they were grafted to that. soil or they developed or they were integrated into into Brahmanism. And so um, we see parallel movements with uh, Islam in India currently. Um, there's when you say, for example, that um, there's a shared religious grammar or worldview, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, just to clarify, the 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 Indo Shia practitioners that you've engaged with, they would have a very different conception of time in terms of samsara, for example. Mm-hmm. Would they would they share this Indic worldview of um, uh, uh, reincarnation and cycles of time, or or not?
0: Um, so not everything needs to be shared. No. Um, so in, so in some regards there, there are what I see as there are there are cyclical notions of time but what is cyclical is very different. So if we look at and this is something that I've actually thought about and I, I've presented on it once and then I, I've never kind of done anything else with it, but I, I think we can actually look at the ritual calendar in, in particularly with regard to Muharram. Uh, and so Muharram is, it's a month in the, the Hijri Muslim l- lunar calendar. It's the first month of, uh, of that, uh, that calendar. And it's also the month when uh, the Prophet Muhammad's grandson, uh, so the third Imam Hussein, uh, he was martyred in Iraq in, in a place called Karbala. Uh, it was a, uh, a place along the Euphrates River. In the year 680, uh, he and uh, 72 supporters, many of whom were family members of his, uh, were martyred by a political opponent, uh, a man, a caliph uh, named Yazid. Uh, his his army, uh, uh, which vastly outnumbered uh, Hussein's small entourage, uh, uh, they were uh, were. Um, sort of uh, under siege and and were uh, martyred on the 10th day of this month of Muharram and and so this event is remembered each year and so sort of the the act of sort of cultural memory uh, through which this you know Imam Hussein is sort of brought to life through sort of particular forms of of material culture in which, uh, during those 10 days, Imam Hussein is sort of sort of embodied and remembered and brought to life, and also through poetry, the recitation of poetry, uh, and in sort of orations and in, um, in sort of assemblies called morning assemblies, the Majlis-e-Azah, uh, these all sort of are cyclical in the sense that Imam Hussein and his family called the Ahle Bayt, they're brought to life. And then that act of death takes place over and over and over again every year. And so in a sense, there is something cyclical about that. But in, in the sense of samsara, we don't. In, so for Muslims, there's really not that sense of of, you know, of sort of birth and, you know, and so death and rebirth, um, coming back in, you know, in another, another form, um, you know, whether it's higher or lower forms, uh, but I, you know, cause there's sort of, there's always this movement forward toward, you know, the day of resurrection and judgment. And, and I, and, intercession, you know, by the, you know, by Fatima, by the Imams, you know, on, you know, for the loyalty that one has to the Prophet Muhammad's family and to the Imams.
1: What is the structure of the book? Maybe as you talk about the chapters, you can mention the the, the data that you're looking at.
0: Yeah, so... The book is so again, so one of the challenges that that I had in writing the book was thinking about the multiple audiences that that I'm writing for. and and so I'm writing I wrote the book with and, and so I'm also kind of a- anticipating and, and answering one of your other questions uh, t- because it, it also sort of gets to, the chapters and, and how I've structured the chapters. Uh, I'm writing for multiple audiences. I'm writing for specialists uh, and, and graduate students, people who uh, are Islamic study scholars, particularly Shiist study scholars. Uh, generally when uh, scholars you know, write about Shiism and engage in Shiism, uh, South Asia is, is often treated peripherally if it's really engaged at all unless somebody's actually writing about South Asia and then it's often the focus is very very sort of particularized uh, rather than sort of looking more holistically, which is what this book does, and, and the chapters, as I as I sort of um, describe them, will give um, give the listener a sense of of um, what I mean by this. Uh, I'm also writing for a more general audience, so for undergraduates, this course. Uh, this book is is ideal for undergraduate uh, students and uh, who are taking courses in, say, an introduction to Islam course or an anthropology of Islam course. Students uh, who are uh, in, say, a visual studies course or an uh, art and architecture of South, uh, South Asia. Course, uh, uh, so the book would be ideal for that. Students inter- interested in gender uh, also uh, would have an interest in uh, in this book. Students who are interested in uh, Hindu-Muslim encounter uh, also would be interested in uh, in the book, uh, particularly in the first chapter. S- English-speaking. Uh, Members of the South Asian Shi'i community, uh, both in South Asia, so in India and Pakistan, uh, as well as uh, those living in uh, diaspora contexts, also uh, would be interested in the book. Uh, so, so I've really tried to uh, sort of pitch the book uh, in uh, in sort of to sort of speak across multiple um, levels. Uh, And so so the writing is is very accessible. Uh, So while I do engage with theory and uh, use different theoretical models to help interpret uh, the the, uh, data that I present in the book, I also do this with what I hope is minimal jargon. So in terms of the chapters, I do have a fairly lengthy introduction uh, in which I do provide um, sort of a sense of the field, uh, particularly in South Asia. Uh, And then uh, I also help to sort of explain what I mean by everyday Shiism. And then I lay out um, what the everyday means through six different chapters. And the chapters I start with um, a discussion of what I call um, sort of the lovers of the Ahlebait. And this is sort of looking at non Shi'i traditions of Alid devotion. And, and I, I present several case studies. I uh, look at traditions of devotion of uh, Husseini Brahmin communities. Uh, then I ex- examine uh, Sufi-inflected uh, or Sufi-oriented Muharram practices in uh, village Deccan. Uh, and so this is in South India. And these, this is sort of Muharram as it's practiced primarily in villages where there are no Shia. Uh, so uh, this would be uh, so how Sunni and Hindu Communities come together to practice Muharram, and and so uh, Muharram ritual and sort of understanding of uh, who Hussein and so Hussein and Hassan sort of come to be fused together, um, even though Hassan, uh, Imam Hussein's older brother, the second Imam, uh, was was died about a decade before. before the Battle of Karbala ever happened. They they sort of become fused together uh, into these sort of fierce gods. Uh, So they get absorbed into this broader sort of Hindu pantheon of gods. Uh, And then I look at uh, traditions of um, spirit possession uh, around uh, Qasim, who's sort of affectionately known as the bridegroom of Karbala. Uh, and and so and he's also the, the subject of my first book in the second chapter I examine uh, sort of traditions of Shi literary aesthetics uh, I particularly focus in this chapter on the noha which is a short poetic form that very interestingly has been understudied uh, in uh in scholarship uh scholars have tended to focus on the longer sort of more epic uh marcia and and then and the noha is really interesting because it it it's here that we see very much the, the female voice. We, we also see it in, in the Marcia, but but the female voice uh, really comes to the forefront. It's much more emotional. It's written in a, in a sort of more simplistic style, which is one reason why I think the Noha has tended to be sort of overlooked. By scholars, uh, also, uh, and this is something that my um, my doctoral student uh, Nabil Joffrey has observed in uh, in his master's thesis uh, that there's there's a, a a sort of subgenre within the Noha uh, that uh, is sort of of non-mourning. So there's uh, there are Nohas. There's a sort of large sort of uh, Range of poems of of the Noha that focus on um, on sort of ethical attunement, um, sort of moral sort of moral um, lessons, uh, even sort of issues of you know sectarian issues. Uh, sort of, there's they're very strongly didactic, and they're really fascinating. And and nobody's paid attention to them. And and they're really really fascinating. And, and there's also, I mean, not enough attentions paid to sort of the role of intertextuality in the noha as well, which is something that you see across all of the sort of sub sub genres of the noha. Uh, I also look at, um, so within, within this uh, chapter, the role of female, feminine voice, and emotion. Uh, I, pay, I also uh, translate A Miracle Story, which, again, is an important uh, space for women's religious uh, practice uh, and also uh, women's spirituality. Uh, and, and these are actually remarkably, I think, complex uh, stories and so, so I translate and comment on one of these miracle stories called a mujizah kahani, uh, and then at the end I look at uh, the role of fiction. And again, this is another space where non-Muslims have, or uh, and non-Shias have, have really participated and, and looked to uh, the Karbala theme and Imam Hussein for. For sort of uh, ethical lessons, uh, and and sort of worked through, particularly the trauma of partition in 1947, uh, for uh, for sort of how to sort of transcend religious uh, violence, uh, but also to to come together as a community of of sort of of nations. Um, and and by nations I mean religious nations uh, in the next chapter I look at and if I'm remembering correctly either build space or um, yeah so the next chapter I look at build space and uh, and so in it's in this chapter that I, I really um, start to bring in case studies small case studies and and so I bring the reader to Hyderabad and to Lucknow and and I, in a sense, bring the reader on tours through buildings, we do close analyses of, um, of architectural formations and, and, you know, what does, you know, what does micro architecture do, what does it tell what does it convey to to the viewer, Um, what are, you know, how does a micro architectural form on a mosque that was once Shia in the 17th century that has become over time, a Sunni mosque, actually sort of help us to, you know, how does that, you know, sort of the form of micro architecture sort of translate to help us understand the Tazia, which is a replica a Shabbi of the sh- of Imam Hussein's shrine tomb in Karbala. How does that help us to think about you know the portability of space to help us to think about the role of creativity and the imagination, uh, particularly for Shi'i communities that are living in sort of geographically distant from these shrine tombs and. S- sort of centers of pilgrimage in Iraq, in Syria. And, and that's a theme that sort of is recurrent again and again and again in the book, that there's tremendous creativity that South Asian Shi'i communities have in making Imam Hussein and Karbala immediate, present, and real in the subcontinent. And so we see it in built space. We see it in sort of image objects, such as the Tazia, these portable tombs. Uh, And so, so I take the reader to a mosque that has these these micro-architectural forms, and we think through the space, we think about, well, what happens when we start to really pay close attention to counting arches, to counting pillars, to counting, uh, you know, different types of, of you know, of forms? What happens when we pay attention to color? You know, can we now start, when we look? just walk by a space, or we walk by a gate, Can we now start to intuit that this might be a Shi'i space when in the past we might have walked by and said, oh, it's just, you know, it looks really plain. How would I know that this is a Shi'i space? And so, you know, now I sort of help the reader to be able to understand wall paintings, to understand color symbolism, to understand the the symbology of numbers and and a whole new sort of visual world opens up with regard to to the real richness uh, and creativity of you know the use of a built form and so in the next chapter with regard to material practice I think you know about and present well what happens when we put ourselves with the objects that are in the built space. And, and it's, this is where, you know, with my, with my current work, I was much more interested initially in the objects, the, the matter, the things. And I didn't care about the built space. And it, I became much more attentive and, and fascinated by the spaces that held things like an alum, And in Hyderabad, for example, it's the alam as sort of the devotional object or the image object that is sort of, you know, the the Shi'i form of devotion, par excellence. So we don't have Taziyas in Hyderabad, but we have alams. And these are metal standards or crests that, that represent or index imam hussein his half brother abbas uh fatima or or other members uh hussein's uh son zainal Abedin, who survived the battle of karbala because he was sick he's known affectionately as Bimari karbala the the sick one the the ill one of karbala and in hyderabad a city that is pro proliferates with relics, objects that are associated with the imams, with the atlebe, with the family. And in th- it's a city that just, it, it's saturated with Shi'i relics. It's something that I find incredibly fascinating. And it's so in this chapter, I write about these relics. And, and what's very interesting, in Hyderabad, we have alams, that during the, the reign of, of one shay uh with the kutub shay dynasty, a Shi'i dynasty that reigned in the 16th and 17th centuries, a number of, of alams had these relics embedded in them. And so these are particularly sacred, holy, beloved alams. So they're what I, I've come to call in my research reliquary alams. And, and there are, miraculous stories that get associated with the Alam, with buildings associated with the Alams. And so I tell some of these stories. So they become, again, case studies to help the reader to understand sort of the context in which these objects and spaces sort of are in symbiotic relationship and how communities develop around these objects. And so I do this for both Hyderabad and I do it for Lucknow as well. So I tell the story uh, of a a reliquary alum uh, or that uh, comes to Lucknow as well to the Hazret Abbas Darga in Lucknow, and and so so for me these stories are, are really important, and I I talk about tazias and 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 so for that you know I I discuss permanent tazia and ephemeral tazia, and and so permanent tazias are are big, they're heavy, they're they're. Carved of wood on which brass uh, is overlaid, um, semi-precious stones. They're they're huge. They're very heavy. Uh, And ephemeral tazias are usually made by neighborhood associations. They're small. They can be carried. Uh, They're they're made of bamboo on bamboo frames covered with, you know, bright paper. cellophane uh and and they're relatively inexpensive and and so these may be purchased by families or neighborhood associations and and these are taken out uh on the 10th of muharram on ashura and these are are buried they're cooled so you do tandakarna to them so they they're cooled and this process of of ritual cooling releases Imam Hussein's body so that the next year he can return to inhabit this image object so that one can auspiciously gaze on the object, on the Tazia. So one can seek, so one can offer prayers. One can seek his intercession to, to God, through God. Okay. And so, so this is, it's a very complex and, and fascinating process by which, you know, these objects are actually very, very much agentival. They're endowed with agency. And they actually, as I see it, sort of subvert human subject agency. And this is where I, at, at the beginning of, of chapter four, I talk about, you uh, Judith Bennett's sort of work with new material, her theorizing of new materialism. And I I think that what this, you know, what the Alam and Tanzia's agency does is it sort of reverses, in a sense, the gaze, because through that act of gazing and asking for, you know, the intercession on behalf of God from the, the imam or a member of the al bayt who is inhabiting that, that image object, in a sense, you as you know the devotee, as the petitioner, is now the object and the alam or taziyah becomes the subject. So it's something that I actually had to do a lot of thinking about in the process of, of doing this writing and thinking about what's actually happening. Uh, and, and then in the fifth chapter, I, which is the longest chapter in the book, is on Muharram. And, and so this in some ways makes sense. Uh, it... I'm not, sh- I would not say it was my favorite chapter to write, actually, which seems kind of weird. Uh, I-, I enjoyed the, mid- the build space and material culture chapters, I think, the most, um, but you know it you know cuz it was it was very much about the structure of the morning assembly of the the mensa saza uh and and so i felt it was in some ways very nuts and bolts and and it was i had to make a lot of decisions about uh i didn't want to include every single events of every single of all 10 days so i kind of had to make some of my own editorial choices about what uh what i wanted to include what days did were, are most important. Uh, and then I did make a lot of decisions with regard to poetry to include that uh, in discourses, so modulus discourses um, to include to sort of, that I felt brought sort of the feelings, the sentiment of that particular day to life for the reader. And, and so that kind of, I sort of kept going back to particular days over and over and over again. I I felt, you know, with, with some of the days, it just wasn't quite what I wanted. And, And some days I kind of kept just wanting to add more and more information and more poetry and more commentary. And I had to step back and I kind of had to shorten that this was a chapter that was already so long and I had to shorten it uh, considerably. Uh, I finish the chapter with a discussion of Motham. Which is uh, self um, self self-flagellation, which is performed at different times uh, during uh, during Muharram, uh, but particularly on the tenth, and and so and this is a ritual that I see uh, as very much performed out of love and loyalty for Imam Hussein and his family, and and it's not a transgressive act. Uh, I see it as socially affirming and, and intrinsically positive. Uh, and then the last chapter uh, is about vow-making, which again co- brings back uh, women. Uh, I also, uh, so there, um, I focus on the, um, Dastar Khan, which is a, an explicitly women-only ritual, uh, although often the vows that are made during and the meal is often held in honor of male members of the Ahlebayt or or imams. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. But but even pregnant women are not allowed uh, to. Participate in the Dastar Khan uh, because they may be carrying a male fetus, uh, so so that uh, I think is is interesting. Uh, I also bring back the uh, I translate another uh, miracle story, um, which is a Kahani, uh, which is called the Woodcutter's Tale, and and then I talk about celebratory events uh because i think that oftentimes when we we uh, think about shiism there's I, there is admittedly too much emphasis on muharram and on mourning ritual which is something i think that we need to uh in the study of shiism uh we really do need to move away from that and that's something you know even for myself i'd like to to do uh and then the last, and there is a brief conclusion. And then for the last part of the book, there is an extensive teaching appendix. So, because the book is also is, you know, for for a broader reading audience for undergraduates, um, I I would like um, for those who would like to teach the book to be able to um, to think about. Uh, how to use the book or how to think about South Asian Shiism sort of in concrete ways, not as an abstract, uh, phenomena. And, and so, uh, I make a number of suggestions. Uh, so I, I offer a number of, of suggestions for how chapters can be used in different types of courses. Uh, and then I also, um, Offer suggestions for documentary films, and then I also uh, make suggestions for um, museums. So, uh, for different types of um, museum collections and what is available in those museum collections. So, and how um, how those museum collections or the objects in the museum collections might be used in particular classroom situations. And then I also, the last thing I do is, uh, make some suggestions for how YouTube or other social media, uh, and I, I give some examples, uh, of, um, sources from YouTube and, and how, um, those, you know, various like YouTube clips, for example, might be um, contextualized in relation to particular chapters from from the book and how they might be used in classroom contexts.
1: What would you say are the key takeaways or your main argument conclusions having done this research?
0: There is so much work that remains to be done. <laughs> and this is <sighs> South Asian Shiism is is a field that is still very much in, its infancy and i think the one thing that i realized in in researching for this book is it's it's still very much an untapped field with with tremendous tremendous potential that excites me and there are just i think there are so many dissertations and books that are waiting to be written
1: Speaking of books waiting to be written, you mentioned this at the outset, but um, what are you working on now? Are you, are you developing the same research?
0: So, well, I'm, I'm actually, so I'm working on multiple projects, but the my writing project for this summer is, is, Sort of in the culmination of this long-term project that I've been working on. It's it's a project titled "Building the City of Heather: Kingship, Urban Space, and Shi Ritual in Kothbshay, Hyderabad," and and so this is a project uh, that sort of has grown out of that much earlier somatic Shiism project, and 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 it builds out of my interest in material culture and and my fascination with alums I've, I've written a number of articles on alums but then when I started paying attention to the spaces that these alums inhabit and and also um, looking more critically or analytically might be a more accurate term at the establishment of Hyderabad as a newly built city in 1591, uh, as it was built by the fifth uh Shahi Sultan, uh, Muhammad Kuli, and his Peshwa, Mir Momen uh, Astarabadi, I really became very interested in um, how this city. Was laid out, which buildings were constructed first, um, and the types of rituals that were built, um, how the city was described in uh, court chronicles and in other sort of eulogistic poetry uh, and and other types of, of literature. Um, composed for for other sultans, Qutb Shai sultans. And it really made me quite convinced that Hyderabad was built intentionally as a Shi'i city, which is
1: the, the argument of my book. That's fascinating. Now, before we close for today, was there anything else you wanted to mention about the book?
0: So, no, I mean, I think, I mean, I was pretty exhaustive in describing what the book is about. I think the last thing that I would just like to say is that the other important sort of contribution that the book makes is that I think in religious studies, there's a tendency uh, to use the word every day without really being explicit, without really theorizing what the everyday is. And, and this is one thing that I'm quite attentive to in this book. And, and so for me, the, the everyday has, has very, very clear meaning.
1: I'll have to say a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. So, so for me, you know, I think that the everyday is, you know, it's a fashionable term that gets sort of, that's used with, you know, frustrating vagueness and in, imprecision. And so for me, I use it in a number of ways. Um, you know, at the most basic level, uh, it refers to uh, the activities of daily life, that are inflected by Shi'i religious laws, norms, ethics, rituals of belief and devotion, and gender values. So that's sort of my baseline definition. But I also, for me, and this this I think is important, uh, it's an inclusive space that recognizes both women and men as active participants in Shi'i religious life and practice without relegating women to the purview of what I see is like popular religion and meant to the scholarly and intellectual domains of Adanishga, so school or university or the hoza mosques or libraries. And so one might consider the everyday uh, to be a dimension of popular culture and religiosity. And I think everyday often gets glossed for the popular uh, and or um, sort of the sort of the low brow and and that's not how I see the everyday, or it falls within the domain of folklore. And I think that this tends to lead to the formation of essentializing or exclusionary binaries of popular elite and everyday scholarly that belie the on the ground experience of uh, South Asian Shia. I also think that for me, The everyday resists setting up artificial binaries. That posit uh, divides between non-elite practice and the religion of the scholars. Uh, The everyday is a space that gets inhabited by all people, whether rich or poor, educated or illiterate, uh, male or female. And I think it's also really important that it's not practiced only in the countryside. The everyday is also the domain of the urban, and so I think for me the everyday also reveals ways in which she identities, uh, like others, are multi-layered. They're shaped by ethnicity, caste, and socio socioeconomic factors, as well as by gender and age.
1: Thank you for speaking about your research today. Thank you. So for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Karen Ruffle of the University of Toronto about her new uh, Wiley publication, Everyday Shiism in South Asia. Um, Until next time, stay safe, stay well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating um, (laughs) the diversity of uh, religion in South Asia. Take care.